Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rablick. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. One of the challenges in the modern day that's emerged over over the past several decades is understanding how social media works and the consequences of social media for a raft of for a raft of reasons. Uh, today, what I'd like to explore is the consequences of social media for media companies, because one of the issues that media companies have had in jumping on social media platforms, platforms that belong to somebody else, is from time to time they've been hauled in a court and asked to um, actually be accountable for things people post on their Facebook threads and um, and other other threads, for example. What we're going to do today, this particular podcast, is explore uh, the Voller case, which is a, a seminal case in defamation law in Australia, with uh, Stephen Brown from Linen Brown Lawyers. He's a commercial lawyer and has a lot of experience in dealing with uh, commercial disputes as well as issues related to defamation. What Stephen and I will do is look at the Voller case and extrapolate that so that you understand what happens if if something you post on a media site, sorry, a media company's social media page uh, is deemed to be defamatory. Who wears the responsibility and how this plays out? Stephen, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Tom, and uh, listeners. Glad to be here. Really interesting topic we've got to discuss today. It, it is a fascinating topic because we're, we're in the thick of grappling with the notions of what is difficult and hard to deal with online um, online communications. Now, it, for the benefit of people listening to this, would you mind taking people through the key facts, the key fact pattern elements of the Vola case? Yeah, certainly, Tom. Maybe if before we do that, we might just have a bit of a look at what's going on with digital defamation in Australia to sort of set the scene for what's now happened in Vola. So yep. in 2018, they did a really extensive study across all jurisdictions in Australia of defamation matters. Um, and, and these matters um, commence in the state Supreme Courts or in the federal courts. So th- this study looked at cases that had occurred from 2013 through to 2017. One of the really interesting things in that study was that in 2013, 17% of those cases related to digital defamation. But by 2017, we were already up to 53% of the cases related to digital defamation. So that increase in only a period of span of four years is, is massive. And so what we can see is that where defamation is largely now being played out in significant proportions is in the digital online forum. But so let's have a bit of a look at Voller. So um, Dylan Voller what came to, to light as part of the ABC Four Corners investigation in 2016, who was at the Dondale Youth Detention Centre and the treatment that he had received uh, whilst being held in that detention centre. And this is what sparked the Royal Commission into Youth Detention Facilities. What played out 
after that ABC Four Corners investigation is between July 2016 and June 2017, certain media outlets, being the Sydney Morning Herald, The Australian, Sky News, The Bolt Report, and The Centralian Advocate, all posted articles relating to Mr Voller, which were posted in a public forum, that the public were allowed to then make comments on their Facebook page. So they publish, what the, the media outlets traditionally uh, do nowadays is drive popular people to their websites is they go into social media forums, in this case, it, it relates to Facebook, and they'll post an image and a snippet of an article that then the public can click on and go to their website to read more deep, more detail detail the article. Now, because they're public Facebook pages, they have the ability for the public to comment. Um, and they, the, the media outlets do like to drive, and this was part of the decisions in these cases, um, and I say cases because it went originally to the New South Wales Supreme Court and then was appealed to the Court of Appeal of the, the New South Wales Supreme Court. And one of the significant things in those decisions was that they had a whole lot of experts at the original trial give evidence in relation to how the media outlets use social media. And they found, for example, that the Australian website, which um, was one of the, 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 the websites or the, one of the publications that was using Facebook to try and um, who were publishing articles relating to Mr Bolivar, that had comments made on them, derived on the 4th of July 2017, 53% of it's unique, which means um, monthly visitors came from that public Facebook page. So a significant portion of the people that are going to the Australian website are coming from Facebook articles. What the judges were really concerned about is that the way in which the media are putting articles on there to try and incite attention. And the way in which we know that Facebook works is that the more comments, the more likes, the more shares that an article has on Facebook, the more people's feed it comes into. So if the article and the headline on it is quite banal, we're not seeing then a lot of people liking, commenting, sharing on it. So the media outlets have got an interest in making it quite catchy, like they do all the time in their headlines in the, you know, the traditional print media, but they make the, the headline and the, the snippet of the article they put in there quite attention-grabbing and often quite controversial to try and incite comment, sharing, liking, because that draws more attention to the article, brings it into more Facebook feeds, then likely to have more people click and go to the, their website and they use those statistics then to drive advertising revenue for the paper. So it's a, um, it's a very modern phenomenon uh, that we're seeing but also an understandable one from the perspective of organisations that lost classified advertising. Um, they once they lost classified advertising uh, to ostensibly a more digital 
a forum in the on, on the internet on the web um the behavior changes and it becomes for want of a better term uh, Stephen, sensationalist and it that that then drives the business model but that there are consequences to it aren't there when you're dealing with things that appear to truncate uh truncate uh, sort of reality or or uh, i think uh, simplify a story through headlines that attract eyeballs. Yeah, that's right, Tom. And the, the really interesting thing, thing that comes out of the Bola case is that the alleged defamatory imputations that Mr Bola's legal team um, have brought to the court and nothing to do with what any of the media outlets publish. There's no suggestion that anything that they wrote themselves was defamatory. And I shouldn't say published because th this is where the crux of this case comes in and, and what makes it quite seminal and groundbreaking in Australian legal history at the moment is that it's comments that were made by third parties, so um, members of the public, comments that they made to the media outlets posts that were found to be defamatory. But what the courts have found is that those comments were published by the media outlets. And, and there's several reasons why the judges found that they published them. And, and what happens is they're considered to be a first publisher. And it's quite a distinction in defamation law between a first publisher and a second publisher. A second publisher has the opportunity that if someone tells them that there's something defamatory that has been, um, that they've published, they have the opportunity then to immediately remove that defamatory material and then not be found liable if they remove it immediately. What happened in these cases is that these media outlets were told that there was defamatory comments being made on there and they did remove them immediately, but they were considered to be first publishers. And if you're a first publisher, you don't get that opt-out by removing it immediately. It's interesting because what... Um what it means is that it goes to the issue of, doesn't it, who has the control to allow publication and subsequently who has the control of the site, the mechanics, the, uh, the page to get rid of, rid of things, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely, Tom. And that was what... Um was quite crucial to these decisions and um, the expert evidence that was given at the trial um, was uh, very closely focused on the mechanics of how Facebook works and what is involved, what would be involved and what the media outlets could do to better police their Facebook postings. And, and one of the things that the... Yeah, and there were several things that they looked at in that regard. So there's several things that Facebook does that allow for um, some dissemination of what uh, can be done in regard to commenting on sites. So because these are public Facebook pages, they actually can block comment to them and they can completely edit it. So they can set up... So the media outlets could set up the ability to read every comment before it is actually published 
openly on Facebook that anyone tries to make. They can also remove and edit posts. They can have word blocking put in place. So certain words that you know would be inappropriate uh, and or potentially defamatory when you create an article that you know could be potentially used, um, such as you know, racist or sexist or things like that, depending on the nature of the article. Um, you can block certain words, and if someone tried to put a comment in using those words, it wouldn't uh, be able to appear. You can put profanity filters um, in the commenting. And you can get also emails sent to you every time someone posts a comment. Um, so one of the things that the first instance judge, Justice Rothman, found was he even went so far as to calculate that if they employed about two and a half full-time equivalent employees, they could and properly then resourced their social media department, the media outlet could have prevented this from occurring. Yeah, I think it, the, other, um, the, the other thing that strikes me as you run through the list of Facebook capabilities, Stephen, is that it, you know, Facebook and Twitter and, and other forums would seem to some people be sources of cheap marketing, right? Um, but the situation you've described, uh, at least in the case of a media organisation, makes Facebook and Twitter and, and other forums more labour intensive because you need to have a new level of risk management in place to ensure that not only that your copy gets legaled by your internal legal team, which you can control because that's your um, that's your internal end-to-end -end process for editorial, but you also have to worry about the quality control of what other people are putting online, and. They never really used to have that problem back in the day when all you had was print, television, and uh, and radio. It's yeah, a very interesting. It's a yeah. really interesting dilemma. Yeah, creating a whole whole new dimension to it. There, there is a significant um, review of Australian defamation law going on at the moment. So the way in which defamation law works is each of the states have their own act, but they're mirroring act. So the, the states have got together with the Commonwealth and agreed on a, a defamation regime across Australia back in 2005. So uh, that, that's great in that you know, we, we, now know, we know that we live in a, um, in a world where you know, this, this sort of law can't seriously be very different from one state of Australia to another or it would create significant issues uh, for the way in which it's policed. Because when you publish something um, where I am in Perth, uh, if I publish it on uh, a social media forum, it's not only seen in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, but it, it's seen in New York, London, New Delhi. Um, so we, we, we've got on the same page in that regard, but what we do know is that Australian defamation law hasn't kept up with the digital transformation. If we look back at those stats that I gave at the start about the increase in cases that are dealing with digital defamation, um, we, we know that 
the law that was created in 2005, that we're living in a very different world now in 2020. So the, the law has fallen behind those, those, those changes because they're coming through so quickly. Um, so there is a dramatic overview. COVID has put a delay on it. We were hoping to see some of that law this year. It is now some part of it is being uh, released, but not yet enacted. Um, but the, the, the significant piece that will deal with this digital defamation is uh, yet to be um, put out. Ed, the other thing, you, you pointed to something interesting. If we can just tease this out a little bit. Um, um, back in the day, uh, there used to be a newspaper here in Melbourne called The Sun. Um, and people interstate would only be able to get it in hard copy when it was delivered. Today, the you know, the, the successor newspaper, the Herald Sun, not only has a print edition, but it's online. It, you, you can access it and make copies of the stories, um, uh, turn them into uh, JPEG graphic format, send them around all over the place. Um, so the capacity to cause reputational damage has increased um, tenfold, a hundredfold, a thousandfold, a billionfold, hasn't it? Uh, exactly, and, that, and, that, and we're, we're seeing that with you know, we we had the um, the original. Um, first instance decision in relation to the Rebel Wilson case with um, Bauer Media that um, set the record at, at 4.5 million, which was you know, then reduced on appeal to 600,000. But then uh, we've had um, the more recent decision of, help me here, Tom, the Australian actor um, that has set the, the, um, the, the current um, record for a, a decision um, in, in so far as the quantum of a, a defamation case. And that, that is because, yes, we're dealing with high-profile uh, media here, media uh, personalities here, but we're also now in an era where the publication is to such a large audience um, that... We, you know, sorry, Jeffrey Russian's decision that we're, we're dealing with now such a, a large uh, proportion of the public that are able to see a defamatory comment so quickly across multiple platforms that it is disseminated to such a large portion of the population. So the damage is being, you know, almost exponentially greater than when it, you had to go down to the newsstand and buy the physical copy of the newspaper. That, and that sort of contributes to the equation, which is uh, the more sensational it is, the further it will go. And in the digital era, it will go everywhere. Um, and that, I think, is what you're pointing to right there. Now, if we if we turn it, flip it on its uh, flip it on its head. Uh, what should people who are uh, participating on a media site 
think about before they actually comment because this is something people wouldn't necessarily reflect on when they read an article, they have an instantaneous reaction, um, they type something that it, in hindsight is, um, is defamatory, but by the time they get to it or by the time they want to try and delete something, um, it's uh, it may be too late. What are the things that users of media sites need to keep in mind, Stephen? Yeah, good question, Tom. Um, so the interesting thing in, in these cases, in, in the Vola case, is that they've gone after the media outlets, and that's because we know that they have significant um, assets and financial capabilities behind them. But and, and haven't gone after the individual posters, they're probably harder to find, but also they, you know, their pockets may not be as, as deep. But that doesn't mean that these individuals that posted these comments aren't actually liable for defamation. So if someone publishes something that an ordinary person would understand by the matter, the comment, the image that's published, that it would cause them to think less of that person, then it is defamatory. So now there, there are certain defences to um, a, an, an accusation of defamatory, and one of them is truth. Um, so yeah, you might publish something about someone, say something about someone on a public forum that is uh, true and it make, would otherwise make people think worse of someone. Um, so you may have a defence to it in that regard. But we've seen uh, a few cases in New South Wales recently where people have published comments on group Facebook pages in some fairly affluent areas of Sydney and they've gone after the individuals that have made the comments and got quite sizable judgments against them. So individuals making comments are just as liable as the media outlets that allow for them to be published. The question then comes down to the person that's bringing the legal case as to can they determine who made the comment? So often, you know, people use pseudonyms and things like that on these social media outlets. Can they track it down to the individual? They might, might be able to through issuing subpoena to the social media platforms such as, you know, Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is that the social media outlet that the comment has been published. And then it, it would depend on, you know, one of the things we always talk to our clients about is, yep, you can have the strongest case in the world, but if the person on the other end of it doesn't have the, the money to pay, is, do you want to pursue it? Now, you'll get some people that will pursue these things for um, principles. It can be a pretty expensive way to pursue a principle, though. Um, but you'll also find that some, if, if, you, you know, if you're going out making these comments and you've got some wealth, then you're putting that on the line. Yeah, and that, that's a caution. Uh, I mean, irrespective of what uh, what the outcome is in terms of the decision, the tactical decision of a law firm uh, in consultation with its client to go for a larger organisation, it doesn't mean that the individual that posted the comment is not 
is uh, is not guilty of defamation. It just means they don't have as big a, big a war chest to draw on for the target of the comments to uh, get some sort of financial compensation from them. Yeah, that's exactly right, Tom. Um, yeah. But, yeah, and, and that there, there uh, is a risk, though. If you're going to start making comments online that are defamatory, you run the risk that someone does try to have a go at you. Um, and, look, I've been a commercial lawyer for just under 25 years now, and uh, if you can avoid the courtroom, I strongly suggest that to my clients. Um uh, unless, you know, there's a, there's a purpose involved. And even if you get caught up in court proceedings, even if they don't end up in, the, in eventually at a trial-based resolution, it's uh, a lot of grief, heartache and expense that you're going to be put to. Yeah, yeah. So there, there's a uh, caution to the listeners out there to, to be very careful how they participate in certain forums because... Uh, you never know. Uh, there might be someone out there who is sufficiently aggrieved um, and affected by remarks that they would be prepared to take uh, a big organisation as well as individuals to court because their reputation matters to them. And we might find some of these media outlets then also coming after the people that comment um, if they suffer damages as a result of that comment. Um and, and also, yeah, the, the thing is too, Tom, is we, we know this is that, you know, you talked to, uh, previously about the fact that the, the normal classifieds and the way in which the media outlets raise revenue have had to change with the time. And if we want to continue to be able to receive good media content, we have to try to protect our media as well. If we go as a public go around making these um, defamatory comments on articles that they publish thinking, oh, they'll go after the media outlets. The media outlets are, are going to um, start to suffer the consequences and so will the, the quality of our content. And that, uh, that, that seems to be a, quite a convenient place to uh, sort of conclude our conversation today, Stephen. Uh, I've been talking to Stephen Brown from uh, Lynn and Brown Lawyers. They're based in, in Perth. Where can people find your law firm online if they want to get in touch with you? Thanks, Tom. Yeah, lynnandbrown.com.au. And you're, uh, you're based mainly in Perth, are you? That's correct. Yeah. Okay, Stephen, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much, Tom. Enjoyed the chat. And uh, look forward to chatting to you on another occasion. And to the listeners, I'll be back again with another another podcast uh, dealing with a dealing with another interesting issue reasonably soon. So stay safe and look after each other.